sometimes there's this underestimation of time and growth. We need to have more women in the room, even if they're not at the level. Welcome to Executive Realness, the show where we learn from the women behind the world's most innovative companies. If you haven't already, make sure you download the Stackworld app today, available on Android and iOS, so you can be part of making this show. My guest today is a hit maker in the field of streetwear, product and design. Rachel Muscat is CEO of Human Race, a well-being brand co-founded with Pharrell Williams. She spent almost a decade as Adidas's global director of iconic collaborations and has developed and maintained partnerships with Yeezy, Pharrell Williams, Jeremy Scott and Palace Skateboards. In this episode, you can expect to learn the power of being in the room when key decisions are made an insight into managing collaborations with talent and the importance of following opportunities when they are presented to you. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming. So when you were a little girl growing up, did you ever think you'd be the CEO of a global product brand? When I was born, I was born in Melbourne, Australia, and I don't think so. I don't think that was something I actually had that vision for. What were you like as a little girl? What did you think you'd be doing? I was very curious. I was I was someone who um, tried a lot of different things. I grew up in a first-generation Australian home, so my mum and dad came from Malta when they were very young, you know, fleeing the war, and my, my mother's mum actually had seven children that she was looking after and her husband had come to Australia 12 years before the family arrived. So my mum had only met her father when she was, when she was 12. So she was basically born and he, he left. And so there was always that sense of, um, working hard, trying new opportunities and new things that came your way. So I think I was always a kid of, of that, of that energy. It sounds like an immigrant mindset. Look, I think it is. I think, you know, you don't take for granted things that come your way um, and you, you always try as hard as you can when, when it's there. Were there any expectations for you as a child? Were there things that your family was trying to push you in or a direction that you were meant to go? Not so much. I think it was, it was more just about am I, am I pushing myself? I think you always feel the, um, the weight of it, knowing what they had to do when they were younger. And, um, you know, the work and the commitment that they had to make, you know, thinking about my mum arriving and she didn't speak English and having to go to school at that age. And so you always have those thoughts of like, okay, it's an opportunity that I've been given. So I, I just kept on pushing myself forward. Did you go to university in Australia? I did. Yeah, I, I went to university. I initially thought I wanted to be a journalist. Oh. That was something that sort of came my way. Journalism or theatre was kind of both of the two things. I loved, um, I was very inquisitive as a child. And and then I, um, as I was studying, I uh, my family also, I have two older sisters and they had um, started their own, I guess, uh, steps into the fashion world. So I was really inspired by them and uh, then decided to take more of a PR business angle um, throughout my studies. So you studied PR, business, communication. Yeah, exactly. And that when you graduated, what was your first role? It was interesting. I hadn't graduated yet until I, I would say I had my first corporate role. I became an intern at the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne 
And through that journey, they uh, had an opening and I'd said, well, I can do it, but I have to finish my studies. And they said, yes. So I was doing one day a week of study and four days working full time. So I kind of was in that corporate life um, quite early, but I, I thrived on that and, and loved it. And funnily enough, I ended up graduating um, after I finished that job um, in Hong Kong, which was pretty bizarre. So, That's wild. Yeah. So what was it like working for the Commonwealth Games? What kind of things were you doing? I was uh, a media support. And back then uh, we had to write press releases. We had to fax out press releases. We had to work with governments and actually because it was a global event um, it definitely opened my eyes up to how lots of different categories have to work together to make something come to life and I think then being able to see the efforts of that at you know the MCG where there's over 100,000 people and all these athletes competing was pretty inspiring Um, but I think maybe the most um, influential for me I was supporting a lot of the athletes during that time there's a lot of athletes that don't make it to the finals. And so you kind of see that journey of all those years that they put in. And when they don't make the finals, there's, there's so much heartbreak. And I think being on that journey with them was, was a really inspiring time early in my career. This is really interesting because immediately when you say that you're intern at Commonwealth Games, I can now see the thread. Mm. Have you read it's very interesting. <laughs> yes. But yes. before we jump all the way to yeah. the end, let's go back to that beginning. So you're in this really unique role of uh, liaising with athletes, some who are going to be famous, some who are not. Yeah. Working with government, so policy diplomats, all of the, you know, more yeah. of an official role and the press as well. Yes. So yeah. this is like a really amazing mix of skills that you're getting mm. super early on. And yeah. I can completely relate to working through my degree as well, because mm. I did that working at Arena Home Plus while still studying at Central yeah. St. Martins. And it just really sets you up for mm. work immediately it makes means that when you graduate you're already thrown into that world and you know what it's like and how to operate within it but you mentioned earlier that you ended up in Hong Kong so Mm -hmm. was that part of the role that you had to go there so not with the Commonwealth Games but when I finished up I went and worked with a an agency in Melbourne who was more around business strategy marketing strategy and you know I had an opportunity to move to Hong Kong and decided to take it. And, Why? Um, well, there was there was a relationship involved at the time. Uh. Um, <laughs> but it was what I found quite interesting for myself was that I Hong Kong was not the roadmap that a lot of my friends were taking. A lot of them were moving to London, and I just really saw this opportunity as something that uh, would show me a piece of the world that I'd been very curious about. So that was, that was a really special moment to kind of take that leap. Ended up breaking up with the guy three months into it and, you know, stayed and, uh, yeah. What was it like in Hong Kong? How did you adapt? Fast. It was the first time moving out of home and it was the first time working in a culture that I, I really didn't, didn't know. And um, I think it was, you know, little things like, Business cards, you have to put your business cards on the table and hold them with two hands and the hierarchy of how you place those business cards and how you shook somebody's hand and, you know, just all those learnings for myself. I think, you know, I, I think about that time very fondly. And then within six months of that time was when I actually joined Adidas as well uh, in Hong Kong. 
When you moved to Hong Kong and you had to learn all of these cultural business uh-huh. tropes, who guided you through that? How did you school yourself on how to be, you know, perceived as appropriate uh-huh. in the Hong Kong world of business? Look, I think you have to rely on those around you. The company I was in at the time, um, it was a very small company and I think I had to watch and listen and you have to be the student actually and really be okay with that. And I was very excited by that actually. Um, so it was, it was very much like self-taught and just watching watching and observing was really important. How did you end up at Adidas? At Adidas. Um, I'm going to say Adidas. It's okay. Because I can't I, say it so the other way. <laughs> you know, I live in the US now, so I had to change because <laughs> immigration were like Adidas and then you're like Adidas and they're like, oh, yeah, okay. So anyway, um, so Ad- now I'm like getting confused. Adi- Adidas. Adidas. Let's do your way, Adidas. Let's do Adidas. Let's do Adidas. Adidas. Let's see. That on. is the way. Um, so I actually saw it in a newspaper and I applied. Classic. It was classic. And I didn't hear back from them. And then I was at a dinner and the person sitting next to me worked at Adidas and he had also been an athlete at the Commonwealth Games. And funnily how the circle works. And I was like, wow, I actually applied for this role. He was like, oh, I can't remember seeing your name. Send your resume again. And, uh, and it was interesting because I was kind of at this trajectory of career. What do I do? And the role at Adidas was a traineeship. It wasn't a, like just a, a role to go into. It was this sort of year and a half program where you'd go into, you know, a city in Asia, do three months, whatever. And However, it was potentially a pay cut from what I was about to go into. And and it was a higher role that I was about to take from another agency. Long story short, I, I decided to take the pay cut and I really wanted to explore this amazing world that I knew of from this, you know, the global aspect of Adidas. And I was meant to fall into the performance side of the business, but they were really starting to ramp up originals and the lifestyle side of it. And... Growing up with my sister's business, they were very um, connected to techno, hip-hop world. And so I had this, uh, I think, yearning to want to want to do that. And so that's kind of how I ended up in this role where there was actually only two of us in the regional office, um, having to work with uh, a lot of the Asia-Pacific counterparts. You took a real gamble. Yeah. What was it that made you think that this was going to be the right one? I think I just listened to my intuition and myself and it felt that there was there was something that I couldn't miss from this. And I think, I also think there was a little bit about the fact that it was a European company and my family had kind of come from Europe. So I, I had another, this curiosity of like, wow, maybe I'll have to fly to Germany or like, what, what will that look like? So, yeah. And there were only two of you in this department. Yeah. So it really allowed you to kind of, set the tone effectively set the foundation of what that was going to be look it was and what what ended up happening was I ended up doing the role for about three months and they were like hey actually we're going to take you off if you don't like we can take you off the training ship um because I decided you got fast tracked I got fast tracked (laughs) and I was like yes I didn't want to leave Hong Kong for three months either like I, I felt like I was already getting all this experience there and they said but we're going to now put you into this role um, permanently within the originals team. And so it was a mix of like merchandising and product management and 
um, trend forecasting within the Asia Pacific region. And one of the opportunities of being so early was there was a skate trip happening and they were like, Hey, we're going to give you skateboarding. It's starting up at Adidas. And I was like, all right, I hadn't really, didn't really understand the culture at the time. And so I get put into this position where there's like all these skaters and Hong Kong is not somewhere that you really can skate. But they were, and Mark Gonzalez was there and Dennis Buzanitz, if you know the culture. And and that I think for me was this first sort of step into a corporate world, but being a part of a community and a culture. And uh, yeah, that was a very special time. What year was this? Because the culture, when you mention those names, it really is a specific era in history. Yeah. When did you have this full-time role at Adidas? I think it was 2007, end of 2007. And how old were you at the time? I think I was 24, 23, 24. What do you think they saw in you to fast track you off that trainee program? I know you're amazing, but what skills were you displaying age 23, um, 24 that made them think, let's take her out of this and get her on the, on the main team? I think I was never afraid to put my ideas forward and try new things. Um, there was that. I think it was also just from myself. I really challenged myself to do a lot of internships when I was younger. So I went in and did PR internship. I think the work being around my sisters, I knew how to build a range plan. I knew how to do color planning. Like there was all these skills that I didn't even really know I had. So when it was time to um, work through the work, it was sort of already happening, which... Um, which was really nice to see. It was like, it, now when I reflect back, you're like, oh, all those little things you did actually are the sum of all parts. So even though you were strategic, you collected lots of amazing skills that were then applicable to your role yeah. in a big corporate company. Yeah, yeah. Did you always want to work in a larger company versus a small company? I don't think that was ever a thought. I think it was more about the work. Do I enjoy what the output is? And I loved the conversion of the music, the cultural, the fashion and sport. Like that for me was always something very interesting and the dynamic of this global brand and the history behind it, I kind of was like, well, why wouldn't I want to just explore it and see what happens? So 2007 is such a, it's the year I graduated. Wow, there we go. <laughs> mm -hmm. And from that period when I first moved to London, 2003, 2007, there was just such an explosion of streetwear and sneaker mm. culture yeah. um, in a way that had been bubbling as a subculture mm -hmm. for a long time, but was not yet quite mainstream. Mm -hmm. What was it like being at the center at one of the biggest companies in the world at the forefront of that culture and also in Asia? Because being mm -hmm. in London, it was all about London, New York, Tokyo, Paris. Yeah. Um, tell me about some of those early years and what that energy was like. Did you know it was going to be as mainstream as it is now? I don't think there was a feeling of the mainstream element. I think it still felt very niche, niche and considered. And I mean, Tokyo street culture was really bubbling then as well. It was, um, you know, Nego and Bathing Ape and all that energy was really exciting and um like I remember seeing lines being in Hong Kong at that time and kind of you're still trying to understand it and 
you're seeing it on the streets and then you travel to Tokyo and, and that was, I think one thing that also came with that role was all the travel it included. So I was going to Tokyo and Seoul and Beijing and Bangkok, you know, every couple of months, cause it was like a quarterly reviews. And what I realized now looking back was a lot of the people in those key markets became your partner in that journey. And so you were seeing it through their eyes. I think it was just, it felt really exciting. I think that you didn't know what it was, but you wanted to be a part of it. So during this period at Adidas, you were probably one of the few women in product Mm -hmm. and particularly working with a lot of men and a lot of men in power, a lot of men who are celebrities and are used to getting things exactly how they want. Mm -hmm. What was it like being a woman in this sportswear industry? There's a moment where you go from sort of being one of one of the pals to then having to sort of demand this like level of respect. And there's an interesting fact within the sportswear communities and workforces that it's actually quite an even split of men and women. However, what happens when you get out of kind of a senior manager level, then it all shifts completely. And I think that was very evident as, as I was growing in my career. And there was definitely moments where you're, you really are the only woman in the room. And for, for many years, it was like that. And I still think that there is a disconnect with that. Um, there's still a lot more work to do with having more women in, uh, within the, the sneaker community um, with, with senior roles. How did you hold your own when you were the only one in the room? I think it was ensuring that I always had the facts that I needed to, you know, prepare and be present on and believe in, have the conviction to believe in what I was saying and putting forward. You know, I, I was actually taken under the wing when I talk about the skateboarding community, but they really, as a woman within that, because there isn't also that many women within that space, but I always felt, I always felt welcomed and looked after. And maybe that was also a part of giving me that confidence, um, with being in the rooms of the CMOs, the CEOs, creative directors, like it was always, uh, there was as, as challenging it was, there was a welcoming feeling. So I did feel that I had that confidence and, and I was very fortunate. I had one leader that he was in a very senior role and he gave me a lot of guidance and support. And especially those first few years with Kanye and Pharrell, it was, it was completely uncharted territory. And so I had to demand a lot of respect and patience from the senior leadership team. And I was very lucky that they believed in me and and let us move a lot of things around that never would have happened. So having a mentor of sorts is really important as well as having the confidence and conviction in what you know and what you understand. Yeah. What can we do to get more women in the sneaker industry? I think sometimes there's this underestimation of time and growth. And I think that we need to have more women in the room, even if they're not at the level. And that was some of the, you know, I had some conversations with some of the leaders that were even my boss at the time of like, just bring me in the room so I can listen and learn. Mm. And So wait, what you mean by that is the women aren't in the room because they don't have the seniority because they haven't been at the company for five, 10 years or more. 
it's maybe more level. Like, hey, this is a director meeting. This is a VP meeting. Okay, yeah. you, you know, so what that then means is that those levels are generally more men. So then you're not getting that exposure to, well, what, what do I need to know in this role? And it's interesting when I think about my um, leadership style, when we have product meetings, I'm sitting in the room, our intern sitting in the room, uh, you know, we're all in that room going through what the product is um, at certain points of the calendar. And that's important because it's important that everyone's hearing what am I looking at or looking for that maybe they didn't think about versus it, them not being in the room and not knowing that that's what they should be considering. And I think that, um, you know, that's probably the biggest shift as well from a corporation to a startup where there's a lot of functions that you're not exposed to because it's just the nature of a big brand. And when you go into a startup, there's a lot of new things that you you maybe hadn't been exposed to before, but if you had, it's a different it's a different understanding. So I think there's a place for that um, within everything else that's happening from a HR side of uh, development paths, etc. You were instrumental in setting up the Yeezy business. Tell us about how that came about and at what point in your career journey. Well, I think it's interesting when you think about. The, the Hong Kong moment and that energy. And my first collaboration work was actually with Jeremy Scott. Oh. And um, that, I could see that bubbling up very much being in Hong Kong. And then when I moved to Germany um, for, an, for a role that was put forward, it was basically what I was doing in Asia, but it became a global role. So it was back then it was, you're kind of like the middle person between the market. So you're helping them manage what are the trends coming through? How do you support the design teams? Um, it was very like you're you're sort of holding hands in the the product creation process, which was which was really exciting and and so there was a lot of those learnings around that. And then I decided, well, I felt the energy of collaborations, and I really decided that I wanted to push for it, and kind of again took a very vertical sort of a job that I wasn't going to get a promotion on to kind of get into product creation and development within the collaborations team. And again, there was only one other person in that. Wait, and can I ask, what collaborations sure. have they done before Jeremy Scott? So there was um, Y3 and Stella, which was part of kind of the bigger, bigger business. And then within Originals, um, it was, and that was a part of, I can't remember the name now, Design by Originals, I think it was Obio it was called. And it was Jeremy Scott, Ali Asha, and... Um, David Beckham by James Bond. That was kind of this sort of niche of like getting the energy coming through the brand. But we had a lot of like originals was in its infancy of sneaker collecting from the archives and consortium. And so there was a lot of internal product that was really exciting because it hadn't been brought out from the archive for a long time. So, so that's kind of how that was sort of growing and manifesting. And, um, and then when I went over, that was where I um, started to like full-time work on Jeremy and build the collections with him. And then throughout that time, um, I put forward Palace Skateboarding as a partnership, Mary Catrenzu. Um, we created our own as well called Spezial um, with Gary, uh, which was really exciting. And a lot of those were just kind of bubbling and growing. Um, Club 75 Guys in Paris, and then over this very strange 
three-week period, I got asked to get involved in Kanye's coming to Adidas and then Frell at the same time. So it was, it was really this kind of, again, this impetus of all this work and building something that then allowed this opened opportunity within the brand. How do you decide who to collaborate with before we go on to yeah. Kanye and Pharrell? In terms of all of those incredible collaborations, because I remember them all mm. so well. They yeah. were like real moments, you yeah. know? How do you decide who to collaborate with? I think for me it was really about, you know, you have to look at what the brand was, where was a brand trying to go and who, who in the community was doing product that was interesting and authentic. And I think the authenticity was always so important. I forgot opening ceremony as well. Oh, yeah. It was an Olympics year and we could see what opening ceremony were doing. They're creating all these amazing so things. So good. So good. And so, and it was really, it's kind of like, I don't know, again, it's like a flavor. You're feeling the energy that's coming and they're creating their own communities. And, and then you have to ensure that there's an authentic partnership because if there isn't, you're never going to, you're never going to get where you need to go together. And, and you have to ensure that you're both aligned also on the product that you want to grow together. Um, and so that I think was always the principles of like you as the product lead, you're kind of building out what the storyline could look like, but then they're also bringing that as well. So it, it really has to be a partnership or I just don't think you can have a successful collaboration. It's really interesting because we had you know, the first generation of sportswear brands only collaborating or working with athletes. Mm. Then you have this section of fashion mm -hmm. and style. And now you have this era of what is the mega celebrity. Yeah. yeah. And what what is different, do you think, about your experience of working with designers who already have existing fashion lines mm -hmm. who are already working to this cycle versus working with what I would call mega super, you know, global yeah, superstars. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's, there's a, just a different creative process. It doesn't mean that it's not the right process. Yeah. It's just different. And in some of those moments, I've always, when I refer to it, I think about this idea of a dream catcher. It's like you're the one that's sitting there feeling what they want and helping them bring that to life. And, and I think when you then go from, okay, the designer to the maybe celebrity or the musician, Maybe it's a different process, um, but I also think that musicians also are their own producers, so they also know how to produce things and curate. And, and so kind of the tools are there, you just have to help them put the pieces together. Um, that's very much how I see it. And sometimes it's maybe like on a true skill set side where a designer knows that there's a, a range plan and things like that. And it, and it also depends on if a celebrity has ever done a partnership like this before. So how you kind of approach it and bring them on that journey. Do you find that the cadence is different in terms of, you know, designers who are used to working to a schedule versus musicians who have a different cadence? It's more like when the work is uh, ready and perfect, it's yeah. ready to go out. Yeah. I think there's both. Like I still think design is a bit of that as well as the, the music element too. Like for sure, there's a difference between you can do a song, you can get a track ready in a week if you want and get it out. Whereas we all know with clothing and footwear, there is a true calendar that you can't not, not follow. You know, you need material to get colored dyed. You need someone to stitch it. The fit needs to get perfected. So there is a much longer drawn out process. 
which can be frustrating. So I definitely feel that from from those who maybe haven't had to uh, deal with that process before. And do you work directly with the artist or musician or celebrity versus working with their entire entourage of people? What is that like? I think you have to for it to be an authentic partnership, but I don't undervalue the people that are around them. I think that they've got amazing skill sets as well. um, And that's always so critical in in the way that the, the brand or the partnership is built. So within three weeks, you said you were doing both collaborations mm-hmm. on the easy and with Pharrell yeah tell me about your relationship with Pharrell and how that started to end up to the relationship you have today it was January 2014 because I remember it very clearly just almost 10 years yeah 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 and uh Kanye was in town December 17th or something like that because I had to change my flights so it was like so you this remember the thing. dates I remember yeah. the dates and there was then this big event happening, there used to be a big Berlin trade show called Bread and Butter. Yeah. And so a lot of the teams were going out to that. And myself and our creative director were like, hey, we're going to stay back because Pharrell's coming and it's obviously important that we're here. And so uh, it just really started as as a conversation and, and a friendship and just really starting out, like, how do you build trust um, and that was always important. So, you know, my, my partners at the brand were also very, you know, we had a really great relationship internally and we were, you know, I think our, the magic from us was always, we really liked speed and to support where we could when there was an idea that came to life, because when you know that there's, especially on, on the music side, if Pharrell was performing or he wanted to try something new, we had the atelier downstairs. There were times where I was literally going and driving to the Nuremberg fabric stores because we didn't have it at Adidas and we needed to get something because he was going to be on The Voice and we were making jumpsuits with three stripes. And so there was a lot of these like fast projects that we were doing to really bring the vision to life off the calendar. And um, and I think that really started this um, mutual like understanding of like we know what he was trying to achieve and help us, so we wanted to help him. So it sounds to me like you're incredibly diplomatic, collaborative, a true partner, and you get shit done. (laughs) I think the get shit done is normally the, you know. Yeah, which is the most important? Do you think right now in the in these this period of your career? Um. Oh, look. I think it has to be a bit of bit of all of them. Like I think. You, the collaboration is always so important, um, but you got to you got to talk. You got to actually do the work as well. How did human race develop as an idea? Um, I was asked to take the Easy Business to the US as part of uh, the new sort of build out that we were going to create for that. So. I moved to Portland, Oregon, um, and at that time, we were the business decided we would leave Pharrell's business in Germany with the creation team there, and then use the U.S. creation team for part of the U.S. creation team for the Easy Business, and so that meant that I had to finish my work on Pharrell and move to this next role. And Pharrell had always said when I was leaving, he was like, "Oh, one day we'll work together," and I was like, "Okay, thanks," you know. 
but we did stay in touch and there was an event about a year after my time at Adidas and Frel and I just really reconnected and we started to talk again about this idea of, well, what could human race actually be out of just, you know, a one product group? How do we make it into more than that? And I think where we landed was this vision of how do you help people help themselves through the guise of culture and community and make it feel cool, make it feel like a good thing that you want to do for not just yourself, but for others. And so that was really the impetus of it. And, um, and then I made the jump and left Adidas after 12 years and moved to Los Angeles to begin this journey. So jumping from a corporate, one of the biggest corporates in the world mm -hmm. in terms of brand and size mm -hmm. to now being co-founder and CEO of a startup, yeah. what were the first things that you did in, you know, that first three months? I think what was, what was good for where I was, um, it was also important to understand Farrell's world. And so there was a lot of other projects that I kind of jumped into very early on was like, hey, maybe you should come to that Adidas meeting. And I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be interesting. I'm on the other side now. Um, but it, I think of what was really nice was there was kind of this moment of the preparation, really understanding the world. And, and at the same time, I also decided to do a short course at um, UCLA um, in entrepreneurship because Amazing. I was like, you know what? I am coming from a big company. What are some of the smaller things that I should really think about? What was that like, by the way, going back to school? It was pretty fun, actually. Well, I don't know if fun's the right word. It was it was really inspiring because it was all these, all, a lot of different people. It was night school and it was just once a week. It was, you know, a couple of semesters. And um, I think it was just, it was, I really enjoy learning. And yeah, and so it was um, just this idea of like learning something you don't know. And what was really great was the lecturer was someone who was, you know, a venture had a venture capital company that he was working with and so I could ask him real questions and I think that was super nice just to go back take a step back and really look at the process so you spent the first few months just immersed in immersion yeah, mode yeah like yeah. learning everything understanding the world uh -huh. also coming from uh Asia Portland to LA it's a yeah. totally different world it's it like, is, yeah. if it's anyone's been world. to Portland it's like campus it's mm -hmm. just campus it like that's a good way to put it it's yeah. like another university campus. it's another university yeah. campus I always yeah. wanted to move there at some point <laughs> so now that you had this immersion into the world how do you communicate the vision of what human race is for people who didn't really understand it because as you said there's lots and lots and lots of different projects yeah. going on within the world, yeah. you know, the sphere of Pharrell. How do you, as the CEO of Human Race, kind of make your mark and carve out, this is what we cover within mm -hmm. that wider world? Yeah. I think for us, you know, I met Pharrell's dermatologist, Dr. Ellen Jones, and she's an amazing woman. And I think that was where we also were like, okay, we see this different categories. We felt the confidence of going into skin um, and first. body first as our own product creation. The human race business then took on the Adidas partnership. So that kind of kept us connected to the culture. And the impetus of the opportunity was really a gap in the market between well-being and the culture and the community. And how do we fill that gap? And it was very much looking at our, ourselves and our friends and not seeing ourselves in the well-being visual that was being presented 
And, and that I think was really what, um, helped decide that like, Hey, it's not just about the physical well-being; it's the, the mental and the spiritual. And that again, is not just meditation. That's going to an art gallery. That's buying your favorite sneakers and feeling the comfort and confidence that product gives you. And so it was really, that was, that's the vision that we have for human race and um, why we feel really confident with different categories, being able to go into them and offer people this confidence for themselves. Was it nerve wracking for you to be kind of, you know, thinking that skincare is going to be the first product line when you'd had this entire career mm. in fashion and sneakers? Look, there was definitely was that moments. Not daunting? <laughs> it was, you know, when, when I'm, you know, getting connected to distribution centers and supply its suppliers where you're about to build the formulas. And what I did was use my network and that helped kind of almost do a re a, a few true months of research and understanding the, the landscape and who is out there and, and who do we want to be as we move forward. And I think once the ideas came together of, you know, building a routine, building a sustainable packaging storyline, being refillable, it helped set the confidence of like, hey, actually this feels really right because I would want to use it. And as a, a woman, there's an expectation that you know all these things about skincare and ingredients. And I just wasn't, I wasn't, I'm not that woman. And so I was really looking at myself through the lens of this and saying, okay, I know that I always want the best ingredients, the best product, but also the trust of whatever I buy. How do we create that? Um, and that was that was really important. You mentioned earlier about this idea of well-being, the the vision of Pharrell and Dr. Elena not being reflected in that well-being vision. I can completely identify. Mm. So as a black woman, mm -hmm. not being able to see that industry of wellness as something that I can partake in because I might be darker or curvier or whatever, yeah. you know, whatever it is in the way that it's packaged up. How did you approach this with Pharrell's dermatologist in terms of thinking, what are we working towards and what is the point that we want to make here with what we're doing in terms yeah. of the visuals? And Absolutely. And, you know, Pharrell was very excited about the opportunity of putting a spotlight on Dr. Elena Jones as a black woman. You don't see no, black dermatologists on the regular. You don't do not. And she is one of the top dermatologists, if not in the US, in the world. Like what she does and how she pushes things forward is really exciting. And that was, and, and what I loved about actually, as we were building the collection together, I actually talked to her about, you know, skin tone. Do we need to create a separate range? And she made it very clear that actually it's not the difference of skin color. It's actually the type of skin you have. Um, and so that even in itself, really, we started to build and um, ideate on the fact that our name is human race and how do we make this as accessible as possible. And so a lot of those learnings, you know, were kind of born in the brand and, and the conversation. You know, for me, human race is a perfect line you know when people often say that like an alien species is a perfect organism yeah. i think of it as like this is the perfect skin line because as someone who's been in the beauty industry for a long time everything about it from the formula to the packaging yeah. to the refillable aspect of it to the marketing and advertising i just think is what the future of beauty 
is. Mm. And it's really remarkable to me that as outsiders from the mm. beauty industry, because bear in mind, I was an outsider to the beauty industry with my now salon as yeah. well. Yeah. But as an outsider, you bring a completely different perspective. Yeah. And what do you think about yourselves, both you and Pharrell, as uh, being outsiders within this one line? And what was the reception mm. from the wider beauty industry? Because for me, it wasn't that positive. Yeah, They right. were more like, yeah. who do you think you are? You don't know anything about this. Yeah. Well, it's funny, like, it's been really supportive, actually, mm. in the within the beauty industry, and maybe it's much more sitting in the US. Yeah. Um, there's a group called Beauty United, which started during COVID, and it's a group of founders that actually come together every week and do like these Zoom calls. And that was very much deep in that time. And I think that what what I respected was that they everyone's very open to support. And now we're on a you know WhatsApp chain where people will be like, "Hey, I need a supplier for this, or who's got a contact to this retailer." And I actually didn't experience that in the fashion side of mm. my experience. So it's a network, it's a community. It, exactly, it's a network and a community. And, I, and you know, I think that maybe if COVID didn't happen, that wouldn't have happened. But there was almost enough people in the, in the industry where there was a fear of like a lot of these founders and predominantly a lot of women actually in the beauty industry as founders experiencing some pretty scary times of like having to close doors, having to let go of people. So it, it's interesting how that created that space for the openness of it. Tell me about your leadership style as a CEO. You know, when I reflect on that, it's, you're always growing in it as well. And I think you start off as the doer, you know, the person who's having to find everything. And then you have to turn that around into trusting those people around you that you bring in to, to do those roles. And so it maybe moved a lot from being in the, in the, weeds all that micromanaging side to much more being about support and guidance um but there's you know there's always that bit of both and we're, we're a small team we're not we're not you know at a massive size yet but um you have to give that trust um but I definitely still keep myself uh in in, the, in as much detail as I can you like being hands-on I do I do but you've got to respect the process as well a little bit you know the strategy for human race in terms of its distribution and mm -hmm. product lines is quite unique because yeah. as you said you call yourself a global product brand yeah you decide what to make and then yeah. make it and then you don't typically put it in the usual uh retailers mm. what is the approach and how did you decide it I think um, I learned something very valuable being a part of the skateboarding community for, you know, it started off in Hong Kong, but then I never left. Like I kept skateboarding within my portfolio, even when I was doing collaborations. And it was always about supporting retailers that were the mum and pup retailers. And that's what keeps the skate community moving forward. Um, and I learned a lot from the likes of Palace and Gareth and Lev and, and uh, our skateboarding, our head of skateboarding, Yasha, at, at Adidas at the time, that you really have to respect the, the store culture. And so when we were building this, we really wanted to ensure that the first years of the brand were working with culturally minded and community minded retailers. 
And so that's where it's led us to, um, you know, our first stores. We started off D2C because it was deep COVID. We launched during COVID and working with Essence, the team from Essence, and then Dover Street Market. And both of them are very, you know, it actually begins as family businesses. And I think there's something really beautiful to that. And, you know, what Rami's done at Essence, what Adrian and Ray have done at, at Dover Street Market, it's all, it's all community. And so that was, I think, we're very fortunate to be able to do that. And now it's really about how do we continue that footprint with um, more fashion retailers. Um, and But it's also a part of what we're trying to do as well. You know, we said that we wanted to be that gap in the market and introduce this idea of taking care of yourself in different in different distributions and where where the consumer where we're also looking for would potentially be shopping for their favorite sneaker or their favorite brand in a in a fashion retailer to also want to what we you know we call out our um key product the three minute facial which is three products and it literally takes less than three minutes to do and so we really feel if it's an environment that is also beautiful, we really respect our product and believe it's the most beautiful it can be for the function that it's doing. Um, it was, that was something that was very important and why we built it. Did you not feel pressure though for scale, for revenue and scale to yeah. just go into a high street retailer immediately? Um, look, I think there's always that. I think, I think. It's interesting. If COVID didn't happen, would it have been a different playbook? Mm. Would we have thought differently? We've always had conversations about that. I think we're not afraid of it. I think there's a way to do it in the right way. Um, and you want to make sure you've got that partnership with those retailers as well so it is successful. So, yeah, I think that, I think no matter whenever you're a founder, there's always the pressure of that. But you have to, I guess, have that confidence and the partnership with your team of how do you want to grow and what does that look like? It's really interesting because that growth story to me is slower, more sustainable, mm -hmm. but also on a well-being entity. Mm. You can't have a team that is not stressed out if you're telling them that they have to, you know, be in 600 accounts all over the world mm -hmm. in year one or two, yeah. which I've seen happen to many, many beauty mm -hmm. founders. They are anxious and stressed because they have this pressure, particularly from outside investors, mm -hmm. in order to scale straight away. So it seems to me that you've created a culture both internally and externally of this having strong mental health, strong links in the community and in the culture. Would you say that this is uh, intentional? Like what is the company culture like? Look, you always hope it is, you know, I'm not going to pretend that there's not hard days and, you know, lots of projects that come up and, um, you know, a few of us have been on the road for the last 10 days, you know, with Fashion Week and now we're in London for meetings and, you know, you. what I always hope is that there's a lot of friendship a part of the team and you can really call that out and be like, hey, I need to rest or I need this support or, and so that's really important. Um but there, there is that pressure and I think you, there's no hiding from it. It's like there's the pressure of, you know, what does success look like today? I think, I think it's interesting, this idea of a slow burn in the sense of like a slower growth versus the big, you know, the big growth. And I think sometimes we forget that, you know, I, I love um, Byredo and I think what has been created there is a 17-year business. 
and that's what people forget. It feels like it's overnight. And yeah. same with ESOP, same with acne. Yeah. And I think that that's really important today because there is this sense of like, how do we just be super fast and super successful? And the celebrity culture does breathe that. Um, but I think, you know, and that's something I really respect with working with Pharrell. We, we knew that the brand was going to be human race, mm. not Pharrell by human race. And he was really like adamant about that. And that was, that was exciting because it's, it's bigger than the person. And, um, that was always very important though, even when I was collaborating at Adidas, if you can't get the product right and the energy right, it's not, there's only so much sugar or energy you get from actually the, the name of someone. It has to be what's actually inside it. What's the DNA connected to it? Without a doubt. And I think it's what's going to ensure that longevity of brand uh, versus other celebrity brands where you are just putting a name yeah. on a generic product. Mm -hmm. But that megastar angle does help. Absolutely. Because you, Absolutely. you just got that from Paris. Yes. I think that when we scheduled this, I'm not even sure if it had been announced that Pharrell now had that role. Yes. Vuitton. So mm. you, I was loving seeing the product being used backstage on yeah, skin. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. How did that yeah. feel? Because again, this is what's really amazing about it is you are able to capitalize on the full spectrum mm. of pies that he's got yeah. his fingers in. Yeah. What was that like? Well, it was exciting. You know, it was the first time Louis Vuitton had allowed a brand like ours to do that. And yeah, even this though, is what was shocking yeah, about it because they yeah. usually only keep it all in house. Yes. And, you know, even to make that happen was not guaranteed. And I think that's also something to remember, like, um, and we were pretty excited when it did get over the line because we, we really wanted to bring those two worlds together. And not just that, we wanted the models to look amazing yeah. and shine and be their best. And we really believed uh, in, in that moment. And so that was very exciting for us as well. And obviously seeing our founder and partner shine as he did, uh, which was very exciting to see. It was incredible. Yeah. Like a real cultural moment, yeah. full circle. Yeah. It was full circle in Absolutely. every yeah. respect that you can imagine. Yeah. So what is next for human race? What are your plans? I think for us, it's really about that strategy planning and what we want the future to look like for human race. I think we've, you know, we, we talk about this idea of proof of concept. You know, we've done something different where you can have a pair of sneakers that says human race. Um, that people are starting and respecting the vision that we want to build. They see our quality and know it's a human race product. We just recently launched um, a broken arm uh, with our human race Sumbers, which was, you know, a beautiful store and a, a great uh, and exciting partnership that we did with Adidas. Um, and now it's also looking at our own categories and where we want to grow. We have um, some more skin within our skin health program. There's some exciting launches in the next few months coming up. Uh, and, and then just really thinking about what, um, what those categories are going to look like over the coming months and years. So where do you get your inspiration from now? Because you're not, you know, at this massive company traveling around the world mm -hmm. all the time, getting trends, which used to be my favorite. It's so much yeah. fun. Yeah. Uh, where do you get inspiration from now? What kind of things are you consuming? I still travel quite a lot in my roles. So I, I see that as such an important part of what I do as a human. 
I'm definitely looking more to art and theatre and museums and like things that are maybe off the what you would assume because I think there's so much um, in learning from other disciplines. I was recently in Japan on a trip and I've become really fascinated with um, like basically it's a rice cooker. It's called a denobi and you it looks like it takes a long time and I think this is also that thing of patience but it cooks the best rice and it only is a you know when you actually do it it's like 12 minutes to cook the rice but it's the way that you prepare the rice for this and so I've been there's this amazing story in LA uh, the woman who runs it has a book and she explained where this town is in Japan that makes these rice cookers and so I took myself to Kyoto and it was like an hour and a half two hours from there and went and met the people that made these um, rice cookers and it was they're the things that feed me now it's like going to actually the source of creation and development and people who spend the time and care on building things because I think it even goes back to sustainability it's not about the recyclability of something it's how long it lives with you and I think that's also when it when you then go into a museum or a, a, a gallery you're seeing things that are created by people that really care about something and have a message to say. So so that's been what's feeding me at the moment. I love that, going mm. back to the source. Yeah. In a world where we are just seeing things that are reposted or reground or yeah. remixed. Yeah. Yeah. The source seems to be a new holy grail, I think. And the fact that you went all the way is literally you doing a pilgrimage to find it. Literally it literally was a pilgrimage. <laughs> I think I underestimated the journey and obviously everything is in Japanese. And so my Google Translate, I had, a, I had an amazing conversation with an artist in this small town just through Google Translate and he made me tea from his father's tea cups that have been in the generation for like in his family, um, you know, generations of, of uh, artists who have been making these tea cups and they're the things that I think you just, that's what you get at the source, the unexpected community and respect and respect for someone who's creating something, which was so fascinating to see and learn. I look forward to seeing Human Race Ceramic Tea Set very soon. Well, let's Thank see. you so much, Rachel, for such a brilliant Thanks, conversation. Well. I'm really looking forward to seeing where the brand goes next. Yeah. Thank you. Likewise, love what you're doing. It's so inspiring. So excited for the future. Executive Realness is brought to you by The Stack World, a media and community platform where you can learn from powerful women. Join The Stack World today and build your new peer network with thousands of members who are all looking to grow themselves personally and professionally. Download The Stack World app now on iOS or Android. You'll find the links in the show notes.